Hello and welcome to Intrepid Times, your home for narrative travel writing with heart. I'm Nathan Thomas, and alongside my co-host Jennifer Roberts, we take you behind the scenes of some of our most popular travel stories, get you to meet travel writers, and help you discover how you can share your own travel stories with the world. Hello and welcome to the Intrepid Times Travel Writing Podcast. I'm excited to be here with Harry Mitsidis. Harry has been described as the world's most traveled man. He is the founder of Nomad Mania. He is an author, and he's going to tell us a little bit about his own travels and this world of people where, correct me if I'm wrong, Harry, but it's not that uncommon among the circles that you travel in for people to have visited, as you have, uh, every single one of the 193-odd countries uh, in the world. No. Well, hello, Nathan. Thanks for having me. And uh, indeed, in our community, having been to every country is quite common. Uh, Many of the people are aspiring to that if they haven't done it yet. Some people have done it twice. Uh, Well, three that we know of. That includes me. Uh, I do feel rather awkward when people call me the most travelled man. I don't think that's something uh, I would ever call myself uh, because I don't really know what standard is being used. Uh, How do you measure that? Uh, So uh, I just rather say that I am rather well travelled in a community of people who all are very well travelled. Um, And uh, again, (laughs) saying I'm an author, well, I've only written two books and they're both self-published. So uh, kind of an author. So when folks go, I mean, I've traveled a fair bit. It's a major part of my life, but I've never even considered the idea of visiting every country in the world. I assume that I never will. I mean, some sound a little bit outlandish and impossible i mean i'm thinking what was some of the most challenging places to to visit not only once but but also twice well some people think north korea is impossible or outlandish to visit which until covid struck it really wasn't it's really quite easy to get into north korea other places which people often think are difficult are afghanistan somalia I don't know, Syria, Yemen, depending on the geopolitical situation. Nowadays, I guess Sudan is a new one on this list of difficult ones. And and it depends a lot on the war zones and conflicts going on in the world. I totally understand why you think that it's difficult. But to be honest, it really is quite doable if you want to do it. And in terms of the, the motivation behind wanting to do it, I mean, and I, no one needs to tell me about the the joys and the, the just the compulsion to to travel. Uh, I get that to my core, as as I'm sure you do. When it comes to like, you know, I'm gonna go and see every country in the world. Is there a way of seeing travel? And I'm not asking this from a like a critical perspective. I'm just genuinely curious as to your and your community's outlook. Is it kind of like a you'd see it like a sport, like someone would collect um, <laughs> watches or or something? I think some people do, definitely, uh, and they are very competitive, uh, and that is why they do it. I think some of the people are not really that interested in the countries. It's more like, you know, there's a list and I want to complete it. Uh, That is not my perspective, and I'm sure many others also have their own reasons. For me, it was more 
You know, in the Olympic Games, you have all these processions and the countries one by one with their athletes. Well, I wanted to actually have a memory from every one of these places, not just see the name. I wanted to see it and then think, oh, yes, I did that in Sao Tome and Principe, or I met that person in Liberia. Um, so I think the motivation for me was definitely a healthy curiosity about the world, uh, understanding the differences between places. I think for us, Westerners, you know, we often think that Africa, for example, is this homogeneous continent where in sub-Saharan Africa, many countries are more or less interchangeable. And then when you actually go there, you realize that neighboring countries are incredibly different, just as they are in Europe. And I think you can only actually understand that when you do it, you go and you spend some time there talking to the people. So ultimately, I think for most of us in the community, it is curiosity. And of course, the fact that the country does exist makes it a must visit. I'm not sure many people would go to the likes of Nauru, which is one of the world's smallest countries, if it weren't actually an independent country. And so because of this sort of mission, you do end up visiting a lot of places that you wouldn't just go to if you were wondering. So so how, you, you must have been to Nauru twice, I, I suppose. How has your experience <laughs> been in um, these places that otherwise you would have never found yourself in? Yeah, I have been to Nauru twice, and I'm very pleased to have been there twice because the first time I didn't really see as much as I should have. And, you know, even for a country that's small, when you go a second time, there's always going to be new things. So now I was there a few months ago, and they it was it was my third from last second visited country. And uh, and they've opened a great new museum, for example. So there's always something new when you go again uh, after a period of time. And of course, on the way through visiting countries, you are going to visit places. You're going to meet people that you were never meant to meet. So I think it really just makes your life so much more colourful and so much more unpredictable when you have a mission like this. We've mentioned the, the community of other people. You're one of a handful who've done everything twice, but but many more have done uh, visit every country once. What kind of people are part of this community? I mean, I assume that visiting every country in the world is not cheap. So they're, they're probably people who are quite successful in business or have some source of funds to draw on. Or do people find a way to do it on a shoestring? Indeed, they do. Uh, the community is extremely diverse. So I have founded a website called Nomad Mania. Um, and because I'm the founder of it, I've had this great joy of meeting many of these people uh, in real life as well. They are incredibly diverse. I think the only thing that links us is the love of travel and the desire to go to places off the beaten track. We're very different in terms of age. What I like about it is how democratic it is. So you're going to get a big group and there's going to be people who are 20 and people who are 70, and they're going to interact as if it's the most natural thing. And I think in real life, that would perhaps be a bit awkward. It, it's unlikely that you would get friends that would be so far apart age-wise. But when you're touring or traveling with a group to an offbeat place, this kind of happens very naturally. And also, money-wise, people are definitely not not all 
wealthy. Far, far from it. Some people uh, work, for example, for a few months a year in hotels, in very ordinary jobs, and then they save everything they can, and then off they go, and they do have a shoestring budget, and they're going to be overlanders, you know, sleeping in really rough conditions, but they really want to do it. Um, And I think this diversity is what makes this community so worthwhile. Everyone can belong into it. I don't think we have any particular exclusion. One of the things is that there are fewer women. It's not that there aren't any, there definitely are, but I'd say it's about 80-20 in terms of men to women, and that's something that we've been trying to change. That's really interesting, and yeah, I suppose it's good to um, dispel the misconception of the the wealth side. Uh, Beyond visiting all of the countries, what are some other, I guess, motivations or missions that folks like yourself uh, like to set out on? Are there remote islands um, or high peaks? (laughs) Like what, what, what are you working on? For example, right now, if you're in the process of a, of a mission, I know you're in Japan at the moment. I am in Japan. I'm loving it. Well, here in Japan, I'm, I'm just having a good time. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm on a specific mission, but, but as someone who is motivated by lists, there are always bits and pieces I want to do. So on Nomad Mania, we divide the world into 1,301 regions. So the philosophy is that the countries alone are not enough. And we divide countries into regions. Small countries may just have two regions. Bigger ones, like the states, are divided into even more than the actual states. Um, so obviously, many of us who are there want to complete the list. Nobody has. Uh, I'm 17 regions away from completing it. Uh, I wouldn't mind if I did, but it's challenging. Uh, So right now I'm on a more uh, break from doing that. We do have a secondary list, which is called DARE, and it's got all these totally outlandish extremes. So even more than just countries, we look at sort of um, exclaves, geographical oddities, weird isolated islands or peninsulas that jut out into nowhere. And that list is quite extensive. So I wouldn't say I'm working my way to completing it. That would be impossible. But I am going out of my way a bit to get bits and pieces done there. And then there's World Heritage Sites as well. Many in the community uh, count World Heritage Sites diligently. I personally don't do that because I find some of them are overrated. But I have on occasion made side trips that I wouldn't have and been very pleasantly surprised. In Sicily, there's a an old Roman villa, uh, which is possibly my favorite site in the whole world with the most incredible mosaics. And I wouldn't have even known that if it weren't a World Heritage Site. So that is another useful list to try to... Uh, you know, strife. So what is it that you get most excited about when you're traveling somewhere? Is it is it the history, culture? Is it the conversations, the landscapes? The variety. So I think I'm addicted more than anything to movement, to change. Uh, so for me, it's the ability to go from one reality to another and then arrive in this totally different reality. That's what excites me most. And I guess when I talk about reality, it encompasses everything, the the people, the smells, the, the sort of 
small details of the place. Here in, in Japan, I love these small convenience stores, you know, 7-Eleven or Family Mart or whatever they're called. You know, you go in and they're like this treasure cove of totally different foods and things that you would never find back home. So these little things that may not be tourist-worthy in the most obvious sense are what give my trips a particular colour. Oh, I completely agree with you when it comes to Family Mart. That's always my <laughs> first stop in Japan. And the assiduousness with which they pack up uh, your snacks at the counter yeah. puts puts us in Europe <laughs> to shame. Oh, totally, totally. And and today I bought a, a box of assorted chocolates or something. It wasn't a box. It was like a little plastic thing. And then I opened it and I found that every chocolate was individually wrapped so uh, that that is just adorable, you know, and again, it would never be that way back home. So uh, these little differences really make traveling fabulous. I was going to ask, but just but your sheer enthusiasm when you talk about family marts in Japan kind of pre-answer my question. But I was going to ask if having been to 17 shy of all of the regions in the world and twice to every country, if you ever find yourself getting jaded, uh, but it seems not. No, no, no. I think that also has to do with personality. Um, I'm, you know, I'm 51, but some people say that occasionally I appear a bit childlike. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I keep my enthusiasm, um, you know, alive, very much like a child. And uh, I, I just think you can never see it all. Even if you're going to the same place, something will have changed because everything does. And then in most cases, just having been to a country doesn't mean you've explored anything. There's so many different angles you can take. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm on a mission to see as much as I can. And there'll always be new places to conquer. The world is really quite big. Is this somewhere that you have lived for long stretches without traveling? Or if there any one country that if someone said, right, Harry, your passport's being confiscated, you have to stay here for forever. Would that <laughs> would that be in the UK where, where you grew up? Would that be from one of the countries? No. No, it, it would not be in the UK. No, no. Um, uh, you know, the UK does have its good points. And I think one of them is that um, it's a very fair country. You know, I think it, it you get what you deserve. That, that's at least the way I see the UK. I also like the fact that there's many airports and you can leave it easily. <laughs> um, but I don't know where. If, I, if if my passport were confiscated, I'd probably get really depressed and dysfunctional and wouldn't be able to move. You know, I'd demand it back at all costs. For sure, if I had to be stranded in a, one country, it'd have to be a very big one where I'd be able to drive around or move around. Um, and ideally, it would be a country with a lot of regional variations, both culturally and geographically, so that I could keep myself entertained. So it wouldn't be Liechtenstein, that's for sure. <laughs> so somewhere where you could tr still travel, which I suppose is the equivalent of asking the genie for more wishes. How, how was COVID then for you, that lockdown time? Was that very, very stressful? Like, it was stressful for everybody, but I guess for you, that must have been especially claustrophobic. It, it was it, it was awful. Now, again, I, I know I might be criticised for this. I was one of the more paranoid, not totally. You know, if on the scale from 1 to 10, I was probably a 7 in terms of being careful 
you know, washing my hands and having all the masks and whatever. So I was definitely not careless about it, which is why I didn't actually get COVID until two years into it and after having been vaccinated. But um, I was very daring. So uh, within a month of lockdown in the UK, I went to Heathrow and flew to Stockholm, which was um, open. Sweden, as you may recall, had its own divergent policies and they stayed open and I am indebted to them forever because they kept my sanity. Uh, so I landed in Sweden uh, at the end of April uh, and I rented the car and I drove off to a hotel and had a meal for the first time in five weeks. And I really felt like Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic, you know, up at the top of the world, you know, like having a meal in a restaurant was suddenly the best thing ever. And I think all this is because for someone like myself and everyone else in the community, we prize our freedom above everything. And what COVID did more than anything, it kind of endangered not only our health, but also our freedom of being able to go where we wanted to go. So this was a very difficult time because I was extremely careful. And even in Sweden, you know, I rented the car, I kept to myself. I, I couldn't interact with people really because I was being extremely careful. And, and that took away a lot from the travel experience because it's usually about people. But at the same time, Sweden is quite large. And I think I drove about 4,000 miles in, in 11 days, uh, just zigzagging up and down to Lapland and everything. Uh, and then, you know, after that trip, it was already May and gradually some other countries started opening up. And uh, yeah, yeah, then I started traveling more. And then the second year, when it became even worse in the UK, I spent extended periods of time in Africa where the rules were much uh, less strict. And yeah, I mean, I got a lot of criticism for traveling, but I was not the only one. And I know a few people who never were in lockdown. They kept on traveling somehow in Mexico or in some countries which were still, you know, not not so locked down internally. There was this whole kaleidoscope. And I, I know some people were, as I did a little bit too in Europe, just based on when the countries were opening, you follow the rules somewhere. But if there was, there was always a strange time when, you could travel perfectly legally from a country in the EU, which was in full lockdown, to a country that wasn't. It was just very, very bizarre. And I know a lot of people kept yeah. kept moving during that time. Yeah, that was a very odd period in humanity. And, and one I'm very glad is behind us. Of course, sadly, just as it was finishing, the war in Ukraine started. So, you know, there hasn't been any respite now for almost four years. What can you say? I'm just hoping that, that you know, things don't get worse. You were in Ukraine recently, I believe, for um, a Nomad Mania event. Do you want to tell us a little about that? Yes. So our big boss, our managing partner is Ukrainian. He's from Lviv and he still lives in Lviv. Uh, so he convinced me that um, having a trip to Ukraine would be very worthwhile and very welcome by the Ukrainians themselves. And I did have my doubts. And of course, I was very concerned about security, but he kind of 
insisted and then I relented. So we organized a trip which involved going quite far east. We went beyond Kharkiv to Izum, which was under Russian occupation for seven months in 2022 until it was taken back by Ukraine. Um, and I think we were a relatively small group. We were about 20 people. Uh, it was very interesting, very enlightening, and above all, in a strange way, uplifting just to see the people there who are being so strong, to see elderly grandmothers working together to knit leaves and other things into a sort of camouflage protection for the soldiers and then have them tell us about it and how they felt it was their absolute obligation to do everything they could for the freedom of their country and how they insisted that they were Ukrainian, even if they had been speaking Russian all their lives, but they were Ukrainian. So the trip was, well, we, we, we did survive. We also had a government-sponsored tour to Bucha, Irpin, and Borodyanka, which are towns close to Kiev, which were under Russian occupation as well. So we were taken around to see some of the ruins. We talked to the mayor in Bucha. It was really, really heavy because we were taken to a church um, where they had sort of art exhibition of photographs of the first days uh, when the Ukrainians took the town, full of dead bodies and things. It was really difficult. Um, but I think all of us, or many of us, felt that this trip was perhaps the most significant one we've ever done, primarily because the people there were so happy to see us, and they kept on saying, thank you for coming, and please just tell everyone that we are still fighting, the war is far from over, and we need your help and support. Uh, because, you know, we will prevail. And they were all very sure that Ukraine is going to win this war. It's just a matter of when, not if. And yeah, we ended it all with the Nomad Mania Travel Awards, which we had in Lviv, which is uh, in the west of Ukraine, so it's relatively safer. We had the event in the bunker, um, and there were about 50 attendees. Uh, and it was great to be able to have a sort of red carpet event in uh, a war-torn country uh, and yet celebrate something. It sounds like a really moving and inspiring experience for everyone everyone involved. I was trying to think of an elegant segue to, to another story I wanted to chat with you. I couldn't really come up with one, so we're just going to make a bit of a hard turn for, for the listeners. But it's very connected to this community of competitive and incredibly uh, intrepid explorers, uh, extreme even explorers that you've been uh, associated with for some time. And that is the young man by the name of William Bakeland, who you actually wrote a book about, The Curious Case of William Bakeland. So, Harry, do you want to take us to that moment uh, in March 2015, when you were on a boat called the Ortalius, bound for a place called Beauvais Island and just let us know what you were doing there and what was the significance of your meeting there with um William oh gosh <laughs> well that'll take about an hour and and the book is what 300 pages long but anyhow very very briefly um yes this expedition trip to Beauvais was a little bit like a who's who 
of the travel community back then. Um, and, and back then, Nomad Mania was very new. Um, and I hadn't met most of these other travelers, many of whom were older than me. So there were names there that I had heard of and I was in awe of. And then I saw them for the first time. And all these people were aiming to go to Bouvet, which is the most isolated place in the world. It's a tiny uninhabited island, which technically belongs to Norway. And it's halfway between South Africa and Antarctica, a small, very uh, unfriendly island, you know, uh, very difficult to get to and even harder to land on, as we were about to find out. Now, my motivations were different because I had never been to Antarctica at the time. So for me, just going to Antarctica was was great. And then the, the ship went on to Tristan de Cunha and San Helena before going on to Cape Verde. So the whole trip was amazing. So I didn't care that much about Bouvet itself. And meeting all these travelers was amazing. And I think this was my entry into the real traveler community. And on the ship was the youngest passenger, was this supposed heir, billionaire heir of the Bakeland family. And Leo Bakeland, at the beginning of the 20th century, invented, in, invented Bakelite, which is the precursor to plastic. And so we all believe that this was a really royal character. And he certainly played the part and became part of the community and very celebrated. And um, most people were really in awe of him because he was only 23 or 24. But, you know, he dressed a bit like a 19th century explorer. Sort of his, his, and, and his whole mannerisms indicated that he was someone you know, extremely cultivated from obviously, uh, you know, a very uh, wealthy background. Uh, but the truth was otherwise. And I was, for better or worse, the one who uncovered the truth um, in 2017 after we discovered that more than half a million pounds had disappeared or people had paid him money for trips that were cancelled without explanation. Uh, but because we believed so much in who he was, we didn't question that. He would come up with excuses that, you know, in retrospect, weren't very good. But people would believe them because everyone believed, oh, he's Bakeland, you know, so he's of royal blood almost. But, um, yeah, ultimately, that's not who he was. And if you want to know more, perhaps you should get the book. <laughs> Uh, people should definitely get the book, uh, which is called The Curious Case of William Bakeland by Harry Mitzidis. It's available on Amazon. So you published this book four, five years ago, um, November mm -hmm. 2018. Have you had any updates since then? So I suppose, you know, just a summary for, for folks who are new to this, Bakeland presented himself as this, this charismatic heir to a billion dollar fortune who could have had the connections to arrange all sorts of uh, extreme travel experiences for people. People paid him large sums of money to do so. Much of that money seemed to disappear and he was not who he said uh, he was. He was not an heir uh, at all. And you um, initially were uh, sympathetic to his story, as seems like most people were, and eventually uh, unmasked him over time. And then you wrote this book, five years have passed. Have you had any contact? Has he attempted to reach out to you? Do you know what he's 
up to these days? No, no, I really don't. But the interesting thing is that everyone keeps on asking me that. So whenever we have a meeting uh, with travellers, even travellers who were not on that trip and, and didn't actually have anything to do with William, they will always ask him, oh, yes, what, what about William Bakeland? Where is he now? So he has definitely left an indelible mark um, on the traveller community. what I Well, the last I heard of him was just before COVID. His lawyer sent me a letter threatening to sue me because of the book, you know, for libel, um, <laughs> uh, which I found very amusing, given that the letter itself had a number of errors, legal errors in it. Um, and anyway, that was the last communication I had. Uh, from anyone related to William. I have no idea where he is now. I do believe he changed his name again. Uh, one of the things about the UK is that you can change your name in five minutes by deed poll, and it's legal and uh, extremely easy and not traceable. So, uh, you know, that opens up Pandora's box if you've got a devious mind. Good to know about the name change thing. So if... if uh... <laughs> If a suspicious young gentleman claiming to be the heir to the Rockefeller fortune or perhaps the Heinz ketchup <laughs> fortune appears in the, in the extreme travel community, uh, traveler beware. Uh, there was a Rolling Stone article about the case of Mr. Bakeland that quotes you uh, extensively. Mm -hmm. uh, the mysterious heir of extreme travel, May 16, 2018 by Sam Bloom. How did that come about? Did they reach out to you? Did you pitch the story to them? No. Uh, what happened is that when when I found out the truth, I wrote to everyone I knew to warn them. So this was about 150 people who, who received this email. And I guess gradually this made its way to the press. Someone told someone who found out about it. And following this article uh, in the Rolling Stone, it actually also became an episode in a documentary uh, by HBO, which I took part in. It was filmed during COVID at the worst possible time. But the whole series was called Generation Hustle. That was the name of the, of the series. And there were 10 episodes of people involved in fraud, uh, younger people who were involved in fraud. So we had the episode simply called Bakeland. Uh, so, I mean, you know, we made it all the way to uh, to an HBO documentary episode. So I think that in itself shows how unusual and bizarre this case was, which it really was, because he managed to fool extremely educated, successful people, older people who've been around, and you would have thought that these people would smell a rat, but they didn't, because he was so successful at targeting or at figuring out exactly what everyone wanted and offering him that precise thing. So if someone wanted to go to the North Pole, he would be like, but of course I can organize the North Pole. You know, if someone wanted to go to Syria, but my family knows the Assads. So of course I can arrange a trip to Syria, that kind of thing. So very smart guy, unfortunately using his intelligence in the wrong way. It's such a genius choice of backstory as well. Like Bakeland, for those who don't know, the patriarch of the family invented Bakelite, which is the precursor to plastic. So there's enormous wealth, but also enormous scandal. There was the the film Savage Grace detailing, I believe, mm. a, 
a son murdered a mother at some point. So it's mm-hmm. very understandable that someone would be reluctant to speak openly about their background if that was indeed uh, their background. Yes, yes, very smart choice. Uh, and I, I imagine sort of in his mind, he probably saw the film. I imagine that's how he found out about Bakeland and perhaps he was fascinated by this and thought, well, you know, why don't I try it out? I think uh, for those who do read the book or become more familiar with the story, it's also a very interesting character study and a little bit of uh, of an insight into the British class system and how someone who's from, you know, a lower class family, uh, but put into an environment where they are constantly surrounded by fellow students who are from better homes, uh, then feel the need to emulate that by perhaps pretending to be that. It's interesting how the, the sort of class thing comes up a lot in conversations with British people around travel. We, The podcast episode we dropped today uh, with British travel writer Jamie Lafferty, he talks a lot about how coming from a working class background in Glasgow put him kind of out at odds with people from the more sort of travel writing community who tend to be folks with quite a lot of resources to to draw on without a lot of effort. Yes, it's interesting. One of our most prominent travellers, I'm not going to mention his name, but he's an adorable, I really like him so much, but he's he's from Birmingham and he has this Brummy accent and he's often very reluctant to, to speak up or to represent because he says, oh, no, no, I can't do that, not with my my accent, you know, it's just not suitable. And I'm like, what are you on about? You know, you know more about travel than almost anyone else. But there you go. Yeah. Curious society. Um, thank you so much, Harry, for spending this time with us. This has been really fascinating. Um, let's ask you two kind of closing questions. First of all, what is next for Nomad Mania? And second, where are you uh, off to next after Japan? Well, Nomad Mania will hopefully grow and prosper. Uh, we do have a few more trips coming up. So we we organize trips for the benefit of the community rather than for profit. And we always make sure the trips are unusual, not the things that you can get through any agency. So we organize them with local fixes that I know personally, and we get uh, weird itineraries. So we're doing one to um, Algeria in April. Uh, which we're calling Unexplored Algeria, not the World Heritage Sites, not the major cities, sort of totally off uh, the main roads. And we're also going to be going to the Orland Islands in June, I believe. Uh, And also Nomad Mania will expand its features. We've just launched a feature on slow travel. So rather than just ticking off boxes, slow travel promotes you know, spending a longer time and, and sort of rewards users who have spent more time in the country. And this is what I'm trying to do now by uh, being in Japan, not to get more credit, but because I find that as I'm getting older, traveling slowly is really more enjoyable and something I get more out of. Uh, so this there's more of that for me. Uh, Korea next, uh, Taiwan and then probably in the first part of 2024, a longer trip to the U.S. A driving trip in the U.S. can never go wrong. That's always great. 
Thank you so much, Harry. Really appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you for having me, Nathan. All the best. Thanks for listening, everyone. And don't forget to check out our new travel stories published weekly on intrepidtimes.com. See you next time. Thank you.